This is the History Tavern Podcast. In the foreword of Corey Farr's book, Longstreet at Gettysburg, Harold M. Knudsen wrote, Upon the death of Robert E. Lee in 1870, several of General James Longstreet's contemporaries who sought to discredit him for his post-war politics took aim at his war record in order to accomplish their character assassination. This led to a century and a half long assault from many writers in different periods who invented one falsehood after the next on why Lee was defeated at Gettysburg. Nearly all these falsehoods attributed the defeat to Longstreet for one reason or another. In this special Battle of Gettysburg anniversary episode of the History Tavern podcast, hosted by me, Nick Tony, I talked to Corey Farr about his book, Longstreet at Gettysburg, A Critical Reassessment. His book includes a blow-by-blow accounting of Longstreet's actions at Gettysburg and seeks to dispel the charges leveled against him. Before we really dive into uh, the detail of the book, and I mean, if you love reading about the Battle of Gettysburg, this is sort of the perfect book because there's so much detail in here. But before we sort of really understand um, what happened uh, to Longstreet and sort of the lost cause, can you sort of just talk about Longstreet generally as a soldier and maybe even his record a little bit before the Battle of Gettysburg? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so as far as his, uh, his military record goes, uh, like many uh, officers in the Civil War, he, he kind of saw his, his, his first stint in, in the military life at West Point. Um, so uh, he spent, he spent four, four years there at West Point uh, in the late 1830s, early 1840s. Uh, he graduated from there, kind of kind of an average student, uh, very athletic. Um, but as far as as uh, studies go, fair, fairly average student. Um, from there, you know, he, he spent a lot of time uh, out west uh, at various at various forts in the Mexican uh, uh, War. Uh, he participated in many of the major battles of the Mexican War. And um, uh, from there, uh, sort of went back into uh, spending time at, at different forts in the West, uh, leading up to the to the Civil War. And uh, when it when it came time to, to to choose sides, he he chose he chose for the South. And uh, then uh, uh, he participated in many of the major battles. Uh, they're uh, leading up to the Battle of Gettysburg. So he was at First Manassas. Uh, he was he was at the uh, he was at Seven Pines. He was at he was during uh, he was at the Seven Days campaign. Um, he was at Second Manassas, uh, Antietam, Fredericksburg. Uh, he missed Chancellorsville because he was um, on sort of a, sort of a foraging mission there down in Suffolk. Um, so he did miss the Battle of Chancellorsville. Um, and that, that kind of gets us up to, to the Gettysburg campaign, as far as his, uh, sort of, sort of his, uh, military abilities and his, 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 uh, mindset. Uh, he was, he was very much a, uh, a intricate planner. Um, he, he would kind of be very, as opposed to sort of the, uh, the more aggressive, uh, tactically style of, you know, a Lee or a Jackson, um, Longstreet was more of a, he was more of a planner. Um, but I think it's a misconception that Longstreet was strictly a defensive general. 
as many uh, have, have sort of suggested over the years. Um, although he was a very talented defensive general, I think Longstreet uh, really excelled um, in offensive operations, uh, particularly in counterstrokes. Um, so, right, which I think you see in Gaines Mills at Second Bull Run, uh, yep. a little later in the you war at, at the Battle of the Wilderness. Second um, Manassas. Yep. Yeah. Um, so, uh, can you can you sort of, uh, and again, I mean, he he gets a rap, and this is your whole book is about this rap that he was a. Um, that many lost cause writers and many historians uh, 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 sort of promoted over the years that he was sort of um, a, a weak or overly conservative. Um, but can you so can you talk about his, his sort of style, especially in contrast to Lee? I know you spent some time in the book talking about how they sort of offset each other and then also a little bit about their relationship. Uh, yes. Yeah, so as I was saying, you know, Lee, Lee was, Lee was more in the style of a Jackson, um, very, very offensive minded. Um, Longstreet was, was more cautious. He, he took some time to kind of, uh, take a look at the situation and, and weigh the options. Um, and, uh, as you just, as you just said, and as I know in the book, I think Lee appreciated that, um, their their kind of tactical mindset sort of balanced each other um and also they had a very close uh, personal relationship so they uh, lee often marched with longstreet he often uh camped with longstreet um they, they were very uh, had a very close relationship a lot of the staff officers and um, other officers noted this and, and saw this. Um, there's great descriptions from from Arthur Fremantle um, uh, leading up to the to the Gettysburg campaign, the beginning of the Gettysburg campaign, um, and also from several of Longstreet's aides like uh, Gorey and Sorrell, who talk uh, at length about sort of the very close personal relationship between Lee and Longstreet. And uh, and I think one of the best sort of counter arguments to the whole uh, anti-Longstreet argument uh, as it relates to the Gettysburg campaign is that that close relationship continued um, even after the Battle of Gettysburg. Exactly. So you have, you have, you have, to, you have to kind of question, you know, um, if, if Longstreet was so sulky and insubordinate and did all these things to actively thwart Robert E. Lee at the Battle of Gettysburg, why did Lee continue to trust and have a very close personal relationship with James Longstreet after the Battle of Gettysburg? Because Lee never uh, suffered uh, subordinates that he sort of couldn't put his trust into. I think you see that um, after the Seven Days campaign. He sort of cashiered a lot of the, uh, his direct subordinates immediately after the Seven Days campaign. And, um, you know, uh, Lee didn't, uh, after the Gettysburg campaign, Lee didn't want Longstreet to go, to go west. There's some, a very heartfelt correspondence that was traded back and forth between Longstreet and Lee after the Battle of Gettysburg. And uh, after, after Longstreet had a significant role at the Battle of uh, Chickamauga, 
Lee wrote Longstreet a heartfelt letter and said, um, you know, essentially, uh, I heard about your great success at the Battle of Chickamauga. Finish your work before you and return to me. Yeah. So this was this isn't a man who's uh, uh, in Lee who is who is wanting to get rid of Longstreet um, right. after the Battle of Gettysburg. And and even Lee, uh, at least in the immediate aftermath of Gettysburg, uh, shoulders a lot of the blame himself. And even offers his re- resignation to Jeff Davis, which uh, we'll, we'll we'll get into. Um, yes. Can, can we? Can you talk a little bit about so Lee Lee and the Army of no- uh, Northern Virginia go north into Pennsylvania, and yes. uh, what is Lee looking to accomplish as opposed to what Longstreet is hoping to accomplish? Uh, so so uh, in part they're trying to free Virginia from a lot of the of the. Um, Sort of the uh, the wartime uh, destruction. Um, the uh, a lot of the at this point, Virginia is pretty pretty much uh, banged up from the war. Um, you've had several several campaigns come through there um, in the in the early years of the war, and um, so so part of it is you know they're looking for they're looking to go north for uh, to sort of uh, give Virginia a break and and gather supplies, et cetera. But the main um, Sort of the main thrust of the campaign is to once again try to achieve some sort of strategic uh, victory north north of Virginia, so in, into Maryland and Pennsylvania, some some kind of victory that's really going to bear some sort of strategic fruits. Um, and so this this gets into a lot of sort of the, the conferences and meetings. That were held between Lee and Longstreet um, in May 1863 uh, in Richmond, and uh, initially Longstreet actually wants he he's actually talking about a strategic plan to link up with several of the Confederate armies further in the West, so with uh, <clears throat> with Bragg and Johnston and and head up into uh, head up into Kentucky. It was called the Kentucky Invasion Plan to sort of uh, uh, get get Ulysses S. Grant's attention away from Vicksburg, and uh, Longstreet believed that if you sort of concentrated um, his corps with with several of the Western armies, that that would distract Ulysses S. Grant and potentially uh, get the Federals to to split their forces and and perhaps go against that concentrated Confederate force um, into into Kentucky. Lee uh, does not want to split his army. Uh, Lee does not want Longstreet going west. Um, he has offensive plans once again, as he did in the fall of 1862, to head north into Maryland and Pennsylvania. Once um, once Lee makes that apparent to, to Longstreet, Longstreet is on board. Uh, Longstreet is on board strategically. There's a difference between tactical uh, discussion and strategic discussion. So Longstreet is is in agreement um, for the strategic offensive. Now they they also talk about tactics. They also talked about tactics, and um, Longstreet is is actually a, it's a misconception that <clears throat> that Longstreet is the only one who brings up the fact that they talk about tactics. Um, he, he he talks at length about this in several post-war accounts, um, but you also see confirmation of this 
even in um, Robert E. Lee's After Battle reports, and also some of uh, Lee's key aides, like Walter Taylor, and I note this in the book, where the Confederates were looking to go on the strategic offensive into Maryland, Pennsylvania, perhaps perhaps the goal being Harrisburg, um, to get up into that area. Um, but the, the tactical goal was to force the Federals to attack the Confederates in position. Um, so, so get the Federals in a position where the Confederates could really land a significant strategic, strategic victory. And Longstreet and Lee, and it's once again confirmed through um, several other accounts like Lee's after battle report, uh, Walter Taylor's writings and, and some others, but they were looking for a battle where the Confederates would be more on the defensive, find good ground and be on the defensive and force the Federals to attack them. Right. Uh, so so it, it, it's it's late June uh, and you spend uh, some time in your book talking about, I mean, of course, whenever you talk about Gettysburg, you have to talk about Jeb Stewart. And uh, I, I think that many historians and many people in general would agree that um, one of the uh, biggest uh, failures or reason for failure uh, uh, was the um, <laughs> not knowing the whereabouts of Jeb Stewart and not having vital information and intelligence that he would have in terms of the size and location of the federal army. Uh, yep. But you, you, you put that blame sort of squarely on Lee's shoulders. Can you talk about that? I mean, Lee sort of let Stuart do what he wanted to do. Is that correct? Uh, yes, to, to, to a certain degree. I think okay. that uh, some, some, of Lee's, some of Lee's orders, uh, sort of kind of the supplementary orders that I go into, um, and, I, and I note in the book um, about if, if, uh, if Stuart was to run into some kind of hindrance, um, in going going further east, um, uh, if he was to run into some kind of hindrance in that movement, that he was to then turn immediately north and and sort of once again trail the Confederate army up into Pennsylvania. Uh, Stewart does run into hindrance pretty much immediately, and uh, unfortunately, he continues he continues his 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 sort of roundabout path, um, which which leads him pretty much out of the out of the campaign and he doesn't arrive into the battle until uh, late on the second day, very late on the second day. Um, but, but the, really the key thing to remember about this um, particular issue and the, the main, the main point of that uh, chapter that I have in the book is that, um, and, it, and it bleeds into other chapters as well, that uh, uh, Lee, Lee had other cavalry uh, resources during the campaign but he only wanted to depend on uh, Jeb Stewart. It was quite, quite clear um, in a lot of the uh, primary sources that I went through and a lot of the statements that Lee sort of made on, on, uh, in the lead up to the battle and also the, the first day and the second day that he, he, was, looking, he was looking to have Stewart's services there. Um, they were very important to him and he didn't have them. And the Confederate Army uh, suffered as as a consequence of that, particularly when it came to um, a lot of the uh, well, obviously the the uh, first engagement on the first day, um, but uh, a lot of the reconnaissance missions uh, that were carried out by um, Lee's engineers and 
and also Longstreet's engineers um, sort of went awry. And uh, could be argued that that Stewart probably would have would have been a better uh, man to carry out those those particular reconnaissance missions. Uh, so it's so interesting because uh, all over your book, Lee seems to be uh, complaining or, or somewhat regretful at the fact that he doesn't have this intelligence. He doesn't know the size of the federal army, um, but yet he's still looking for a fight. Um, and yes, so, uh, so, so um, uh, fighting happens on July 1st, uh, north of Gettysburg. And just to oversimplify it, uh, to get us to sort of late in the day, um, the uh, Confederates ultimately chase uh, the federal troops uh, through town and onto Cemetery Hill and Culp's Hill. And another great debate that has happened for years and years since Gettysburg is why didn't Ewell take Cemetery Hill or Culp's Hill? Can you sort of get into your argument there? I mean, obviously, a lot of people have blamed Ewell. A lot of people have said that if Jackson was there, Jackson would have taken it. But but again, and we'll get more into Jackson later because it's so interesting to sort of compare him to Longstreet. But can you talk about uh, your sort of argument? I mean, Lee is there. Lee, you know, Lee knows what's going on. It's not like he's, um, you know, somewhere else not knowing uh, the situation. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. I'd I'd like to keep it, you know, more more in in line with with my arguments as it relates to Longstreet. But but on that particular sure. issue, um, you know, the the main argument there is, you know, once once the Confederates on the first day uh, push the Federals um, off the hills and ridges north and north and west of town, uh, down through the town, and they they regroup on on Cemetery Ridge and Cemetery um, Hill. Um, Lee's looking for an opportunity uh, to get at them in, in the, the late afternoon hours. Um, and he does have some resources there to, to do that. Um, some units from, uh, from Yule's Corps and also from, from Hill's Corps that he, he does have on hand. Um, and I don't want to get into the, the sort of the what if, what if this would have happened, what if that would happen. But as it, as it relates to uh, uh, Longstreet, the debate often comes up that, well, Longstreet should have been there. And historians usually get into this by, by noting an account from James Power Smith, um, a 1905 account, 1905 account um, from James Power Smith. And Smith essentially says that when Longstreet arrived, um, it, it was about the time when Lee was considering uh, following up his success west and north of town um, and attacking uh, Cemetery Hill. Uh, Yule had asked if if uh, he could he could probably go forward with an attack if he got some support from AP Hill. Now, according to Smith's account, uh, Lee says Lee turns to Longstreet and says, uh, "You know, where's your where's your men?" Um, and uh, Longstreet points north and west of town on the Chambersburg Pike and notes that they're 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 still on their way. Um, now, a lot of historians go into uh, the usual argument about Longstreet being slow, Longstreet being a slow marcher, um, this and that, um, when they sort of analyze this account. And uh, the, the fact of the matter is that Longstreet and Lee were together uh, initially on the morning of July 1st. And uh, they, were, they rode together all the way to Greenwood. And once they got the Greenwood, uh, 
it was it was sort of found out that Edward Johnson's division from from Ewell's Corps was coming down from the north, and in order to concentrate uh, Ewell's Corps quicker, Lee makes the decision to give uh, Johnson's Corps and Ewell's very long wagon train sort of the right away there. So Longstreet uh, has to wait with his two divisions, uh, Pickett's division still out in, in Chambersburg, um, guarding the, the Army's trains. But his divisions of, of Hood and McClaws sort of have to put a pause there and uh, wait for Johnson's uh, division and Ewell's wagon train to pass pass through there at that intersection. So it's a very, there's a very uh, sort of good reason why, why Longstreet's uh, divisions were not available on the evening of July, July 1st, when, when according to Smith, uh, Lee turned to Longstreet and said, are your men up? Right. Now, historians have often used that as, a, as some sort of a valid rebuke of Longstreet, that Lee was rebuking Longstreet for, for not having his men up. But it's quite obvious, based on um, that situation at the intersection in Greenwood, that Lee would have been very much aware of of why Longstreet was delayed on the afternoon of July first. What does Longstreet make of the situation uh, at the end of the day on July first? What what is he advocating? Yeah, so so Longstreet Longstreet arrives in the late afternoon hours, um, and uh, pulls out his binoculars, takes a look at the situation um, with the Federals uh, regrouping on Cemetery Hill, and. Uh, he doesn't look. He doesn't like the looks of that situation, um, and uh, he, he essentially says we have we have the federals where we want them, um, but I, I think he suggests to Lee that uh, he would like to redeploy the army uh, further south to get between the uh, the federal army and and Washington D.C. and Baltimore, um, in line with sort of those tactical suggestions that we already discussed um, about about finding a, a good defensive position. And letting letting the Federals uh, attack them in that position, uh, Lee at that point disagrees with Longstreet um, and says thinks that they have an opportunity there. Uh, after the war, there's a lot written about this idea that there was um, a sunrise attack uh, planned yep. for for uh, July second, uh, and again, this sort of um, uh, building up this idea that. Longstreet was slow and Longstreet never really had his heart in it. Uh, and so you, you this thoroughly dispel this theory that there was um, an, an order to attack at sunrise July 2nd. Can you just sort yep. of go into the, the, where that came from and then how that's just, that wasn't the case. Yeah, that was sort of the, uh, the anti Longstreet group. I'll just call them that. Um, right. So we don't have to get into sure. the lost cause, uh, uh, stuff, um, but uh, the anti-Longstreet group in the in the early 1870s, um, that was sort of their first salvo against Longstreet's Gettysburg performance, and they did this to in order to protect Lee. Um, in, in the late 1860s, 18 actually right after the war, uh, 1866, uh, Longstreet contributes to uh, a series of interviews for William Swinton's book. The Army of um, the Campaigns of the Army of the Potomac, and um, in that book, Longstreet sort of uh, outlines some of the suggestions, the alternate suggestions um, that uh, he had suggested to Lee 
on July 1st and July 2nd. And um, uh, obviously, uh, once once the likes of Jubal Early and and uh, William Pendleton saw some of this stuff in print, coupled with um, some of Longstreet's post-war uh, political decisions to join the uh, the Republican Party uh, to support his friend uh, Ulysses S. Grant, the Longstreet held a series of appointments in Republican administrations in the post-war years. Um, he became a Catholic in the South. All these things coupled together, um, plus the fact that um, Jubal Early often talked about, and there's a direct quote on this, um, to the fact that his principal goal in the post-war years was to enshrine the military prowess of, of Robert E. Lee. So he was protecting Lee, um, essentially saying Lee never made a mistake. Lee never made a bad decision. And of course, um, because Gettysburg was viewed as the um, most, to many, as the most important battle of the war, the high tide of the Confederacy, um, of course, Lee could not make a mistake at Gettysburg. So they had to find someone else to pin the blame on. And the low-hanging fruit was Longstreet, the post-war Republican, the post-war Catholic, the post-war um, uh, in, individual who uh, sort of questioned Lee's judgment at Gettysburg through that Swinton publication. And so their first um, their first salvo was the sunrise attack. And uh, they, they essentially said, based on based on nothing, there's no evidence for this anywhere. In fact, um, if you look at William Pendleton's after battle report, that's enough to uh, dispel this theory altogether because William Pendleton talks about a whole plethora of, of activity, reconnaissance activity, all kinds of preparation activity on the Confederate side um, on the morning of July 2nd. But uh, Pendleton and Early kind of come up with this long sheet was supposed to have his men ready to attack the, the federal left at sunrise on July 2nd. There's no evidence whatsoever to support this. In fact, uh, in the 1870s, the mid 1870s, several other ex-Confederate officers, many of whom would go on to be critical of Longstreet in other ways, um, wrote to Longstreet. There's letters that were um, published in Longstreet's memoirs. They eventually um, were published. And um, they're, they're from the likes of Walter Taylor, uh, Armistead Long, um, a couple of Longstreet's aides who wrote to Longstreet saying, we don't know what early and Pendleton are talking about. We never heard of any such sunrise order. So this was entirely a, um, a fabrication um, in order to protect Lee and to uh, pin the blame uh, for uh, some of the failures on the Confederate side on July 2nd on James Longstreet. And it, it's so interesting because you see throughout your book that, of course, again, uh, Lost Cause um, writers sort of... Uh, uh, promoted this and so many historians and uh, historians you, you know we've all read our whole lives have sort of um you know uh, perpetuated this idea uh and so and 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 I, I towards the end i'd like to get a little more into that because you know it, it must take a lot of courage to write a book like this i mean you know uh uh in terms of talking about historians that are very well respected 
uh, and sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, just pointing out where there are some inaccuracies. So, yeah, um, yeah I'd like to get into that if we could. Absolutely. 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 Um, so, uh, again, July 2nd and there are delays and there. Uh, um, we just talked about the sunrise attack. So uh, ultimately, uh, the attack occurs uh, late in the afternoon on July 2nd. Uh, and, and part of the delay, isn't this true? Part of the delay is again, that Lee really doesn't have an understanding of where the federal position is. Can you yep. sort of get into that a little bit and then talk about the, the attack and what actually occurs? Cause you, it's, it's a pretty sure. successful attack. Uh, you argue. Yes. Yes. Ultimately. Um, yeah, I love this topic because this is, this is one that gets sort of misinterpreted and, and harped on. Um, in, in in so many uh, debates and, and civil war forums, et cetera, wherever you go, you run into this argument. Um, it I like to start with because uh, this this whole thing is kind of an onion, and you have to peel it back layer by layer. Um, but what I really love to start with uh, with people on on when it comes to Longstreet and July second is you have to start with the time, eleven a.m. And uh, eleven a.m. is very significant. Because it's it's the time when Lee actually orders Longstreet to begin his movement to the extreme right. So before 11 a.m., there was never an order. There was no order. I would challenge anyone to come up with some t with an order before 11 a.m. There's no evidence of it. The first time Lee Lee issues his orders is at 11 a.m. That means you have one hour of morning left. So. Many of these people um, uh, who, who talk about Longstreet could have attacked in the morning. Longstreet should have attack, uh, attacked in the morning. Lee intended for Long, Longstreet to attack in the morning. Start with 11 a.m. That's when Lee finally issues orders to Longstreet to move his two divisions to the extreme right. Now, there's... There's other things that there's reasons why it is it didn't happen until 11 a.m. This order wasn't issued. Um, and the main thing is that Lee was actually uh, sort of uh, he was uh, um, he, he hadn't made his mind up yet um, th throughout the early morning hours and into the mid morning hours about where he wanted to initiate the attack and also uh, if, if he wanted to keep Ewell's Corps, where it was located um, north and northeast of Cemetery Hill. Um, he never liked uh, the position that Ewell's Corps occupied. There's significant evidence um, and a lot of the things that Lee said, and I go into that in my book, in the overnight hours of July 1st and well into the morning hours of July 2nd, um, up until about the 10 a.m. hour, Lee never liked Ewell's position. Uh, Lee had several meetings, at least two in person, um, with with uh, Richard Yule and other Second Corps, other Confederate Second Corps subordinates about moving uh, Yule's Corps around to the Confederate right to potentially support Longstreet. Um, or there's even an account of uh, one of Yule's aides, George Campbell Brown. Uh, where Lee says, I haven't decided to it to if I'm going to fight a battle here yet. Um, this is the overnight hours of July, July 3rd. 
and he's talking to Brown and saying, I'm disowning you. Blank. Um, in line with what Longstreet had suggested in the late afternoon, early evening hours, July 1st. So you have all this about, about Yule. Um, didn't like Yule's position, potentially moving him around behind Longstreet, maybe something else. Um, he also considers initiating the July 2nd attack with Yule and not Longstreet. And um, Lee sends two of his subordinate, two of his staff officers, uh, Charles, Charles Marshall and Charles Venable over to Yule in the overnight hours of July 1st and in the morning of July 2nd to kind of uh, flesh out if there was a possibility on Yule's front to initiate an attack from there instead of on Longstreet's front. So you have that. It's not until Lee returns from Yule's front in one of those in-person meetings that I just talked about that he comes to Longstreet and he says, it's time to move. This is 11 a.m. Now, um, at 11 a.m., now Longstreet is still missing Evander Law's brigade of Hood's division. They were in New Guilford, 24 miles from Gettysburg on picket duty. And so Longstreet, uh, realizing he's, he doesn't have Pickett's division, um, they're in Chambersburg. They're on their way to Gettysburg at this, this point, but they're not going to be here in time. So Longstreet requests that he wait uh, for the arrival of Law's brigade before the first corps moves to the right. Lee consents to this. So once again, we have Lee issuing orders at 11 a.m., and we have Lee giving consent to delay the movement yet again. Now you're out to um, the 11, 11.45, perhaps 12 noon. But wait, that's not it. Now we also have the issue of ongoing reconnaissance activity. So you have the early morning reconnaissance carried out by Samuel Johnston um, and, and a couple others. Uh, but that particular reconnaissance, which is the one that <clears throat> most historians talk about, it was to find sort of the basic contours of the federal position. Now, there were additional reconnaissance activities in the morning of July 2nd to find things such as a concealed route to the right. Johnston is involved with this reconnaissance as well. Captain Samuel Johnston, one of Lee's engineers, is tasked with trying to find a concealed route for Longstreet's divisions to the extreme right. Take a look at Lafayette McClaw's writings uh, in the post-war years. Very important, very important source, Lafayette McClaw's writings. And McClaw's points to the fact that Johnston came to him, and McClaw's even says it's 1 p.m. at this point. Johnston came to him and said he's ready to conduct his division on the march. Um, and McClaw's also calls this whole concealed route, this whole concealed march idea that Lee imposes on Longstreet's divisions as a, quote, millstone around Longstreet's neck. So uh, you have the 11 a.m. order, you have the delay with Law's brigade, and you have the concealed route, the concealed route orders. You're well into the early afternoon hours by this point. And all of these things came about at either um, emanated from Lee, um, came about through Lee, 
where he gave his consent for them. Um, so that, that's how we get out to the, to the early afternoon hours. You can, you can forget the morning hours. You're, you're out to the early morning, early afternoon hours by this point. Right. Right. And, um, and, and so, uh, the, so the long street is on the move and there, the, the plan is to attack the federal left Lee, I think, uh, the initial plan is to attack moving up the Emmitsburg Road. Correct. Uh, it, when Lee orders uh, <laughs> makes that order, there's nobody there. Uh, Correct. Uh, it's only after that that Dan Sickles decides to move his, uh, his core uh, into the Peach Orchard and take a line that runs basically, I think, from the Peach Orchard into the wheat field around Devil's Den. Uh, and can you just sort of talk generally? Uh, again, you you know, um, a lot of people look at uh, day two from the Confederate perspective and see it largely as a failure. They didn't get Little Round Top. Little Round Top looms large, uh, uh, particularly in popular history. Um, but yeah. uh, Longstreet does capture the Peach Orchard. He does capture Devil's Den. Uh, and it's yep. only until he, and you say this in your book, until he starts moving into what should have been AP Hill's sector of the field, that he's somewhat uh, he he sort of uh, uh, runs out of steam. Yep, yep, exactly. You made a lot of uh, great points there, um, and uh, yeah, uh, I think it's very important for students of the war to understand that Lee's orders on July second were to attack up the Emmitsburg Road. Notice a uh, little round top is well off from from the Emmet, from the Emmitsburg Road. Um, the long, little round top really never entered into uh, Lee's attack objectives on July second. That that battle um, is, has as as much bravery um, and courage and and bloodshed uh, that happened up there on Little Round Top. Um, it was never really in uh, the main attack objectives. Of Robert E. Lee on July second, um, the the first attack objective, and you can you can take a look at at, at uh, Robert E. Lee's after battle reports to confirm these things. Lee talks about his first objective is the Peach Orchard, um, and he wants to use that as an artillery platform to then gain Cemetery Ridge, and the ultimate objective is Cemetery Hill. That's why you have this order to attack up the Emmitsburg Road. Um, a lot of people don't realize this, but uh, the attack orientation of McClaws and Hood's divisions on July 2nd, um, initially, you would have had McClaws and Hood at 90 degree angles to the Emmitsburg Road. Uh, they would have been pretty much completely perpendicular to the Emmitsburg Road facing Cemetery Hill because that was based on the intelligence that Lee was given in the lead up to the attack on July 2nd through his engineer and other engineers, um, Samuel Johnson, that the federal left flank rested um, just to the left of, of um, Cemetery Hill, perhaps near uh, Ziegler's Grove um, or the, the uh, high watermark. Um, but that was where Lee had his sights, up the Emmitsburg Road, Toward Cemetery Hill. Um, so I, I think it's very important for students of the war to keep that in mind um, when they're when they're studying and reading about the second day. Um, that was why 
that was why um, so many times in the, the, the sort of infamous exchange between uh, between Hood and, and Longstreet in the lead up to the July 2nd attack, where, where Hood's uh, asking Longstreet, um, you know, I've had scouts out there, I see an opportunity around the round tops, this and that. First of all, it's late in the day. It's late in the day at this point. It's, you know, four, 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 the four o'clock hour. Um, and Hood's just asking to take his division around the round tops. Um, what, where's that going to leave McCall's division? Um, but the key thing is that Longstreet consistently says, we must obey the orders of the commanding general attack up the Emmitsburg road. So you can see where the Confederate attack objective was on July 2nd. Did not in, it, it did not have Little Round Top in its sights. It was Peach Orchard, Cemetery Ridge, Cemetery Hill. And and in case, you know, um, some some people still want to buy into Longstreet's heart not being into in the attack, I mean, it's some of the hardest fighting of the war. Uh, and Longstreet himself puts himself, I mean, Longstreet, I think, plug, uh, plugs a gap at some point uh, in the Peach Orchard. Uh, yes. so, so, I mean, it's, it's just, yes. uh, you know, and, and again, these, these are some of the scenes that play out in your book. Um, yes, he leads, he actually leads Kershaw's brigade and also uh, William Wofford's brigade into battle. <laughs> That's incredible. Uh, which is, so he certainly had his, had his blood up in his, at least by the time, certainly by the time combat started, his his whole heart was into into the battle. And 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 just to just to to sort of this wasn't he wasn't a man who lacked bravery. I mean, he was wounded in the Mexican American War. He was wounded. Uh, he was wounded yep, later in the back. war uh, at, at the wilderness, and he was wounded yes. after the war, which I I'd like to ask you here in, in, in a few minutes. Um, so uh, the night of July 2nd, again, uh, Longstreet is successful in capturing the Peach Orchard, the Wheat Field, Devil's Den. What, what, is, what, is Lee, what does Lee do on the night of July 2nd? I mean, you point out that Meade on the other side, Meade's having a council of war. Meade's trying to get everybody uh, that he can to sort of weigh in on what they should do. But what's Lee doing? Well, uh not not too much as far as trying to get his principal subordinates together um there's no council of war um now a lot of a lot of folks say well that really wasn't lee's modus operandi most of the time but uh i think i think uh, lee above anyone knew that he had two new corps commanders under his command um you know after the reorganization uh, from from Jackson's wing, um, you had A.P. Hill and, and Yule, two new corps commanders. And I think Lee, um, you know, I don't think I don't think Lee uh, was 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 completely happy with the results of the of the second day, particularly when it came to uh, concert of action between corps. Um, so it, it probably would have been uh, probably would have been helpful for the uh, three corps commanders, Longstreet, Hill, and Yule to, to get together with, with, with Lee on the evening of July 2nd and sort of talk through some of the options they, they might potentially have. Um, you know, Lee was certainly committed. Um, he talks about in his after battle report um, about the battle plan for July 3rd being, he uses the word unchanged. 
from from July 2nd. So we know that Lee still had his sights set on continuing the offensive on July 3rd. It was just a matter of how he was going to continue the offensive. But this 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 word unchanged and um, coupled with the 4.30 a.m. meeting between Lee and Longstreet on the slopes of Seminary Ridge, this very infamous early morning meeting um, on, the, on, the, on the morning of July 3rd between Lee and Longstreet, uh, Lee comes to Longstreet with a plan. Um, and the, the plan essentially is to use Hood and McClaws divisions yet again to attack the federal left center with picket supporting. That is the first plan that Lee comes to Longstreet with in the early morning hours of July 3rd. Longstreet pushes back on that plan and essentially says, he makes the argument that Hood and McClaws are the Army's right flank. Um, if you know, if they they happen to be repulsed, uh, the Federals could certainly counterattack and get behind the Confederate Army and into their their flank and rear. Lee accepts this counsel and immediately pivots to uh, essentially what I guess is it was his alternate plan. And the alternate plan is what we get with what is now uh, you know, most commonly known as uh, Pickett's charge, the Pickett-Pettigrew-Trimble charge. Um, so I think, I think when it comes to talking about the third day, and talking about plans for the third day, um, you kind of really have to key in on um, Lee's after battle report where he talks about there being an unchanged battle plan. And also that, that really early morning 4.30 a.m. meeting between Lee and Longstreet and what Lee initially brings uh, to Longstreet as far as his, his initial plan goes. So uh, Lee orders again what we now know as Pickett's charge um which again an oversimplification but essentially uh you're going to attack the dead center of the federal line uh marching across three quarters of a mile of field uh and yep. part the sort of the the reason I, I the reason that this might work at least in Lee's mind is because of the artillery uh, and the plan to use the artillery. And something that's really interesting in your book that you see play out is this dynamic between Longstreet and uh, E.P. Alexander. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about sort of their back and forth and then how that sort of ended up turning into again, what becomes the, you know, Longstreet becoming a scapegoat. Yes. Um, so, so the artillery plan, you know, um, that was kind of as, as far as supports go, um, that was that was pretty much Lee's main plan uh, to support uh, the Pickett Pettigrew Trimble Infantry Charge on July third. So, I, according to his after battle report, you have to look at his after battle reports. Uh, Lee talks about, and EP, EP Alexander also uh, talks about it. Longstreet talks about it. Um, but the plan was essentially to, to advance main artillery line support uh, behind or on the flank of the attacking column. And now, uh, I think you really need to, to look at E.P. Alexander's accounts. First of all, he talks about how impractical that is, um, 
how demoralizing that is to to uh, an, an infantry attack force. He goes into a, a ton of reasons why that is just an impractical plan. Um, but E.P. Alexander uh, did not ignore these orders. And Longstreet, if you take a look at the notes, uh, they were passed back and forth. They're, all the notes are in my book um, verbatim. Um, if you take a look at a couple of notes from Longstreet to E.P. Alexander, he talks about uh, making sure that uh, we conserve enough ammunition for the, the infantry attack and also to make sure that we have that they had um, artillery available to push push forward with the infantry. Now, E.P. Alexander uh, does come up with a plan. Um, it involves some mobile howitzers um, that he compiles together. And essentially what he was going to do was march them out uh, or move them out in front of the infantry column, fire a few rounds uh, in front of the infantry column uh, toward the Federals, obviously, and then uh, uh, pull those pull those uh, howitzers back once the infantry passed through. Um, that was that was his plan, um, according to both E.P. Alexander's post-war accounts, fighting for the Confederacy and military memoirs of the Confederate. Now the problem becomes. Uh, in the lead up to the infantry attack, William Pendleton, along with moving the the artillery reserve too far to the rear, which which played into um, uh, the fact that the Confederate artillery didn't have proper am, uh, ammunition to to support the infantry attack. But he also moved these howitzers uh, without telling uh, E.P. Alexander. So. Once, once Longstreet goes out, ultimately to join E.P. Alexander, um, just in front of Seminary Ridge, as Pickett is about to sweep forward, uh, E.P. Alexander drops these two bombs on, on Longstreet, saying, "We don't have the, we don't have the ammunition." And oh, and by the way, I had this plan for you. Um, I was going to move these howitzers out in front, et cetera, et cetera, and um, those were moved. So I don't have any. Uh, advanced artillery support for the infantry. Um, so both these things are dropped on Longstreet just as Pickett is, a, is emerging from Spangler's Woods. Now you can imagine how this, and this is when Longstreet admits, I don't want to make this charge. I don't see how it would succeed. And um, for those who think that Longstreet was being sort of secretive and only saying this to Alexander, he puts it right in his after battle report. Um, it, there's a sentence in there in his after battle report um, about how if he had been in the position to uh, revoke that order, he would have. Um, so there, there's a lot going on here between advanced artillery support. Um, E.P. Alexander had a plan, sort of William Pendleton thwarted that plan. And now we have the infantry um, going forward without that advanced artillery support. And what about the argument that Longstreet didn't use all the troops at his disposal, that he was sort of reluctant to, because um, you get yep. into that late in the book. Yes. Uh, so the, as far as infantry support goes, um, a lot of people talk about the troops in Long Lane. Um, they talk about the second wave attack. 
um, there really isn't any evidence to support support these things. I think um, if you really look at a lot of the after battle reports, I think you really have to look at those and what um, a lot of these principal commanders on the field that were there um, and, and shortly after the battle wrote these after a battle after battle reports, people like uh, like uh, Richard Anderson, um, you can look at AP Hills after battle report. They talk about um, how really infantry support was based on if there was any success, any visible success made by the, the uh, by Pickett, Pettigrew, and Trimble. Now, I think you can I think you can take a look at uh, it would have been hard to to uh, I think make the make the case um, that uh, Pickett, Pettigrew, and Trimble really had much of any success um, in their attempt to to break Cemetery Ridge. You know, there was a, a couple handful of men, a couple dozen men uh, from Armistead's brigade that 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 made it uh, that breached breached the line there at the angle. Um, but uh, there really wasn't any uh, significant success. Certainly, it wouldn't have been visible to to the Confederate High Command, the, the Corps commanders, the, uh, obviously the attack commander Longstreet, um, back on back on Seminary Ridge. Um, so, uh, like we said before, uh, well, you know, the the picket charge is not successful. Uh, uh, I think there's it results in seventy five hundred casualties. I think just on day three in the charge, um, yep. and That's and. And, you know, in, again, in the immediate ma- aftermath, Lee blames himself. He, he offers to resign. Uh, you know, some really, um, he says, how can anybody have confidence in myself? I don't have confidence in my own self after um, that. So just to touch on a few things uh, and go back to a couple things before I let you go. You know, this is, uh, like I said earlier, it's got to take a lot of courage to write a book like this. Uh, th- there are a lot of prominent historians um, that that you uh, sort of point out many inaccuracies. So can you just sort of talk generally about what it's like to write a book like this and possibly what some of the reaction was afterwards? Uh, yeah, so, I, and I've said this, I've said this before, I think in other other interviews and other venues. I, I had nothing personal against uh, any of these um, these other historians. My my goal with this book was to set set the record straight based on uh, a lot of gaps and a lot of inaccuracies that I was seeing between the primary source record and the secondary source record. Um, a lot of source material was either overlooked, um, ignored. Um, that perhaps did not fit with the traditional narrative um, of Longstreet's performance at Gettysburg, but for whatever reason, um, it was left out. Um, and I, I, I kind of point to a lot of a lot of uh, uh, Lafayette McClaw's uh, writings and also E.P. Alexander's writings and others that discount um, a lot of the the traditional narrative um, of of Longstreet's Gettysburg performance and how historians have covered that in the past. Um, so uh, I don't think it's it, it's nothing it's nothing where I was out to to get these historians. Right, sure, I just think sure. it's important yeah. that we get we get the we get the story straight um, and that we're not 
for not overlooking evidence or ignoring evidence, whatever it may be, um, in order to, to fit our narrative, you know, neatly into a little pocket. Sure. And, um, so that, that's, that's, that was my goal with the book. Well, and I think it's an important book and an important subject, um, because it, it, while it's not what you're, the, it gets at the heart of the lost cause, which I think is really important to understand, um, to sort of understand the civil war and the aftermath of the civil war. Um, just one last question, if I could, Corey, um, can you talk a little bit about how Longstreet defended himself after the war? Um, I think he, he largely tries to ignore, you know, he knows, you know, that these guys are out there early and, uh, you know, writing, uh, falsehoods. Like he largely tries to ignore it, but as you know, his life goes on, he, 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 you know, ends up, uh, defending himself. Yes. Um, yep. As, as you noted, uh, you know, Longstreet initially tries to ignore a lot of the attacks against his performance at the battle and his, his record in the war generally. Uh, but I think by the, you know, the mid 1870s, late, late 1870s, he sort of feels that he needs to inject himself into the, the conversation. Um, I think, I think particularly, uh, when, when Longstreet, um, and, and Helen Longstreet, uh, talks about this a lot in her book that she wrote or had published just after Longstreet's death. Um, his second talks wife. About, yeah, correct. Yes. His second wife, Helen Longstreet. Um, she talks a lot about how much uh, William Pendleton's sort of, and particularly the sunrise attack, um, the, the effect on Longstreet that that had, at least initially as a spark to, to get Longstreet to, uh, start start writing about his his role in the battle and and try to right a lot of the wrongs that he was seeing um, from the likes of of Jubal Early and William Pendleton. Um, but he 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 went back and read the, uh, the Helen talks about how Longstreet went back and read William Pendleton's after battle report, um, which was published in I think September 1863, and Pendleton's talking about all this activity, all this activity on the morning of July second that the confederate high command was going through to get the men in position to be able to attack and then he's seeing uh what pendleton is now saying about him you know in the press with this this fabricated sunrise attack theory and i think that really um upset longstreet now i'm not going to say um and i've never said this that uh longstreet's accounts in the post-war years were 100 percent uh, accurate. Um, but I think to that, uh, a lot of historians have sort of exaggerated and I, and I write about this in the book, uh, the unreliability uh, as they see it of Longstreet's writings. I think that is a, a vestige of the, uh, the anti Longstreet group of the post-war years, if you want to call them the lost cause group. Um, those who were seeking to defend Lee at all costs, they often talked about <clears throat> how uh, you can't trust Lee's, you can't trust Longstreet's writings, you can't trust anything he says. That is a that's a vestige of the anti-Longstreet group's argument um, of the post-war years, and unfortunately, <clears throat> that survived um, well into the 20th century and and even up to the present day in many instances. 
And and just uh, to add one more thing, uh, Corey, because I again I think it's so um, it's so important to understanding Longstreet and sort of post-war in general, and Reconstruction. Uh, as you as you mentioned before, Grant became a Republican. Grant endorsed his good friend Ulysses Grant. Grant uh, Longstreet gets a position uh, in uh, you know uh, he's essentially hired by Grant's administration. Um, which made him a very easy target. But can you yes. just just touch quickly on it? Because you, you do say in the book, why, why is Longstreet? What's what's why is Longstreet a Republican? Why does he become a Republican? I mean, he 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 thinks about this very differently than a lot of other Southerners. Yeah, um, I think I think a quote from the infamous Daniel Sickles um, that that Longstreet was a rainbow of reconciliation. Um, he Longstreet very much believed in giving his all um, for the South uh, during the war. But once the war was over, uh, Longstreet was, and he wrote in um, the, uh, the infamous newspaper articles of the late 1860s, New Orleans Times and, and others, um, about how it was important to, now that the, the North had won a war, to, to, to come together and accept that result. And, and try to move forward, uh, even in the South, as best that the South can um, for the South's benefit. He thought that it would be better for the South um, if they accepted the, the result of the war and reconciled with the North, as opposed to what many other um, ex-Confederates um, sort of were talking about in, in, in the post-war years about continuing to um, sort of push up against uh, the, the the union and and continue the fight um, in the in the South's cause. The book is Longstreet at Gettysburg: A Critical Reassessment. Uh, and again, we were talking to that Corey Farr. Corey, I want to thank you so much for doing this. It's a really phenomenal book. If Gettysburg is your thing, uh, you got to read this one. There's a lot of great detail in it, and it's just um, I, again, I think it's a really important topic. So, Corey, thank you so much uh, for talking to me. Thanks a lot, Nick. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the History Tavern Podcast, and thank you to Corey Farr. You can follow this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Twitter, and Facebook.